Welcome back to Money Minutes for Doctors. Once again, I am your host, Christina McAteer, and have the pleasure of welcoming the lovely Miss Catherine, our guest for today. How are you, Catherine? As always, it's a great day to be with you, Christine. Well, you're not only kind, you're smart, and you're beautiful. So you've got everything going on. And today you're going to teach us about some money mistakes that doctors have made with their investments and how we can make some better choices. Help us understand how to plan and prepare for the future, Catherine. Okay, well, let's just run through a few of them. Uh, And I thought in no particular order, let's start with stock picking. So Tell me what you understand about stock picking, Christy. To me, stock picking is some, well, I'll say physician, because of course I'm in the medical field, that's in the break room, standing by the coffee pot, talking about this amazing stock, and whoever he's chatting with then runs out, um, logs under the computer, and purchase a lot of shares. <laughs> How does that sound? <laughs> that sounds about right. So the whole theory behind stock picking is that our doctors or, you know, the general investment public thinks that they somehow know something that the rest of the world doesn't know about this stock. And when you think about it, there's, I don't know, billions of people investing. I don't know, at least hundreds and hundreds of millions of people investing. So to me, it's always kind of silly to think, oh yeah, I know something. In general, stock picking doesn't work. The latest studies show that with evidence-based investing. And there's another reason it doesn't work. And this is something we've talked about in the past, but Uh, let me just review it here, is high-frequency trading. So if you recall, Christy, high-frequency trading is when the computers are actually doing what humans used to do. They are actually the computers, the AI, is actually reading the news. And based upon reading the news, then the computers themselves are making the trades. And you can imagine that these are happening literally in nanoseconds, absolute nanoseconds with these trades. So given that a huge portion of the current stock market is done with artificial intelligence, I would say it's almost impossible for a doctor to do a good job of picking the right stock at the right time and selling it at the right time. Admittedly, I don't know much about stock trading, but it does sound like there's just no way to compete against AI with how fast everything's moving. All the old techniques that we grew up with really do not apply anymore. That's exactly right. Or what worked for your grandparents isn't going to work for you. And uh, there's a study done uh, some years ago. And the the question that the study uh, put to the researchers was, where do the returns actually come from in a portfolio? And what they found was very interesting. It was about, oh, I'm going to call it 93, 94% of the total returns came from how the portfolio was structured. What percentage were in domestic stocks? What were in global? What uh, positions? What, how much did we have stocks to bonds? How much did we have in utilities? How much in small companies? How much in large? Really, it was only about 6% or so that actually came from picking the right stock at the right time. The rest of it was based upon how the portfolio was actually designed. That's really interesting because one thing I was thinking about when you mentioned picking a company is that I would dare guess there's very few doctors out there that have the skill set to effectively review the financials of any publicly traded company to see if they are structured well, funded well, etc. All those points that you raised. A daunting task for sure. It is a daunting task. Uh, Very much so. 
So I had a client oh, a year or so ago come to me because they'd been reading the news about a particular company that was headquartered in Minneapolis, which is where we, I was at that time. And he really wanted me to buy this company for his portfolio. Well, I could do that, right? I'm a stockbroker. I manage his funds. I could do that for him. I said, you know, there's less than a 7% chance that this is going to do better than what we are already doing. And he looked at me and he was like, oh my gosh, you're right. This is emotional. I've got to get the emotions out of the investing. I go, that's right. Well, we know that emotions sometimes get (laughs) the greater good from us. So as you've said repeatedly, and I would agree with, do not make any sort of financial decisions in a point of emotional distress or emotional exuberance. It's probably not going to get you to a good place. Exactly. You make the point that, doctors don't know what they're buying. And and maybe I'm being a little bit too hard on the doctors, but maybe if I champion it to investors often don't know what product they're buying. Tell us what you mean when you say that, Catherine. It's all the time when clients sometimes have private placements or other things, and they really have no idea what they're buying. So one of my pieces of advice to our clients and listeners is make sure you really understand what it is you're buying. You need to know what the risks are, what can go wrong, and more importantly, how liquid is it? If something goes wrong in your life, how do you get your money out of this? So very important to know exactly what you're buying. I think those are fair points for sure. And at the end of the day, if you don't know what you're working with, then you're probably not going to be very successful. So I guess time to study up. It, well, exactly. To me, it's the equivalent of me just walking into some pharmacy and put, pulling some drugs off. You know, I don't know anything about these drugs. I don't know what the contraindications are. I don't know any downside risks. But that's really what doctors are doing when they're just pulling any old investment off the shelf without investigating it thoroughly. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like just as medicine has gotten incredibly complex over the last few decades, it sounds like the financial world has also been accelerating in leaps such that it takes a lot more sophisticated knowledge and a a savvy investor to be successful in today's market versus years past. What do you think? Oh, I totally agree with that. And plus, you need a great deal of resources just to keep up. Uh, you know, so let's take a huge mutual fund corporation. They spend millions and millions and millions of dollars a year just in research, not to mention the computer technology to do the analysis. And the regular investor just can't compete with that. And even that makes me think back to your point just recently about the role of artificial intelligence. You know, it makes me think, gosh, how sophisticated is your software? How accurate is your software? Do you have your modeling right? So yes, the artificial intelligence is out there working and it's playing a part in our markets, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it was developed correctly for the job that it does, adding yet another level of sophistication to our financial world. Right, right. I, it's funny that you should bring this up because a couple of years ago, one of the things that was very popular in the financial services community was something called robo-advisor. So it's artificial intelligence that's really taking the place of a financial advisor. And I'll be frank, a lot of the younger financial advisors were like, oh, no, this is going to put us out of business. This is so horrible. This is whatever. And I'm like, oh, big yawn. And the reason is as sophisticated as all of this technology is, and believe me, I pay a fortune for this technology for our, for our clients, I don't think it ever takes the place of sitting across the table from a client and really getting into their heart. What are they all about? What are their loves? What are their passions in life? 
what do they want to accomplish and how can we best do that for them? And I don't see how uh, a robo-advisor could ever do that. I agree. And I will say one of the things that gives great value to what you provide for all of us is your emotional investment because feeling your support, knowing that you're on our team (laughs) allows me to breathe a little bit easier. So thank you, Catherine. It's really a passion for me. You know, I get to go to work every day and do something so remarkable, which is change the lives of every one of our clients. And that never gets boring or dull for me. And I get to do that. And I also get to change the lives of our team members, all the people who work on my team. So honestly, it's like the best job in the world. Well, I'm glad you're there. And given that consideration, I see up next you have don't consider the tax consequences of your investments. And as you know, I am so, so fond of your point about tax efficient investing. Help us understand what do you mean when you say that our investors or or young doctors don't consider the tax consequences of their investments? Well, keep in mind that the taxes on your investments are going to have a much bigger impact than anything the stock market can do. And most of our clients haven't been able to connect those dots yet. The taxes, much bigger consequence. I have a number of 15, 60-year-old doctors who are coming to me. They've been doing their own investments, but something deep in their soul says, you know, I want to retire. Maybe I need to get a professional looking at this, you know, a second opinion, if you will. And by and large, they, they've amassed $3 million, $4 million, but a huge portion of it, sometimes 80% of it, is in the tax deferred or the pre-tax bucket. It might be in their 401ks or their 403b plans. So on paper, it looks like, oh, yeah, we're worth $4 million. But really, let's just say two-thirds of that has never been taxed. They're not really worth $4 million. You know, They might be worth two and a half or maybe three if all of that was actually taxed. That's still a lot of money, but it's probably nowhere near enough of what they really need. So as our clients and our listeners are, are thinking about this, I'd like them to consider their work accounts and considering their tax accounts at work. I think that's great news because one thing I hear a lot from colleagues is, nope, my financials are all set. I've maxed out my 401k. I'm all good. And I'm thinking to myself, gosh, if only it were that simple. There has to be a little bit more than just your 401k for better or for worse. Right. So even our doctors at Kaiser, and I will tell you, Kaiser probably is one of the best retirement plans in the country, cannot live in retirement just maximizing their 401ks and the wonderful pensions they get at Kaiser. So you really have to consider these uh, these tax consequences. I've had a number of doctors surprised that their 401k was going to be taxed at ordinary income tax rates. When they retired, they didn't know that. And sooner or later, you have to pay the piper. So you All those years you put it in pre-tax, you didn't have to pay the taxes now, but yes, payday is coming. Uncle Sam wants his. There is going to come a moment when you're going to have to pay Uncle Sam for all that money. It's funny how they always have their hand in the piece of the pie, doesn't it? Totally. So also when we consider tax consequences, we have some, as I mentioned, some pretty sophisticated software, and it will do retirement projections based on whether clients put it into pre-tax or post-tax. Post-tax would be the Roth accounts at work or Roth IRAs. Almost always what happens is you have an increased, I'm going to call this probability of success. I'm using air quotes now. What that means, the more money you have in the tax-free bucket, the less likely you are to run out of money in retirement. It seems to make sense because I would dare guess that it's already been taxed, though that money is 
truly yours at its face value to spend as you need to or want to. Exactly. I think of it as tax insurance. You're paying it today. Now, granted, when we've got high earning docs, it's painful because they're already in a top bracket federally. And then a lot of states, New Jersey, uh, Minnesota, New York and others add additional taxes. So it can be very painful to pay it today. So to me, that's part of the, tr- the trade off. Some things just to consider going forward. And one other thing I think about is what the federal interest rates are doing in terms of how inexpensive it is to borrow money, meaning would it be better to potentially save and carry a a little bit higher loan on a mortgage or a car or something like that versus pay it in full if you knew that you could go ahead and start saving with a fairly good rate of return and then, of course, the benefit of investing early on. Right. And we run these what-if calculations all the time for clients, and I can't think of a single time assuming the interest rate was low enough, to your point. If the interest rate is low enough, they're always better to spread the the loan payments out and then use that additional money to invest. And the advantage there is now you've got a pot of liquid money. You don't, once you've paid that loan off, obviously you can't get that money back. I'm not saying never do that, but usually if you've got an interest rate of, I would say six, seven and above, yes, you want to pay those off as soon as possible. But if you've got low interest rate, We've got doctors now that are borrowing money at three, three and a half percent for their mortgages. Hello, I'd hang on to that as long as I could. That's such a low rate. Perfect. And you make the point that it's just so important to start saving early and investing earlier. Can you speak to that, Catherine? Yes, huge. Honestly, if if our audience doesn't get anything out of today, this is it. Don't wait uh, to get started. So I've got an example. And Christy, if you want to put the slides from this. In our notes, I'd be happy to do that because I know some of our doctors are listening. It's hard to get these numbers straight and might be easier to look at the numbers. So in my hypothetical here, I've got Dr. Ben and I have Dr. Ben putting 2000 a year uh, into a Roth IRA. I assume that at age 18, Ben was doing something. I don't know. It could have been mowing lawns in the summer, uh, working at a convenience store in college, whatever it is. But he just did 2000 a year from age 18 to 32. So he did that for 15 15 years. That's a total contribution of $30,000 overall. Now, assuming he gets an 8% return at retirement, once again, I assumed age 65, he'd have close to three quarters of a million dollars, 743,000 plus dollars to be more exact. Now, does that surprise you, Christy? Hi, it sounds like a nice healthy pot of money, I guess. You know, as you just pointed out, it depends on whether it's a Roth or whether it's a uh, tax deferred investment. But I applaud him getting to work early in life and being disciplined to save. Definite benefit there. And I consider 30000 not a great deal of money to turn into 743000 To me, that's the astonishing part about the compound interest. Absolutely. Yes. In my hypothetical, I had him put it in a Roth. So that's going to be all his money, all 743000 Now, compare this with Dr. Chloe. Dr. Chloe waits till she's age 42. She's finished all of her training. She's finished residency. She's even done a fellowship. And she starts doing a backdoor Roth every year at age 42. She puts in $6,000 a year, and she does it until she turns 65. That's only 24 years, not 15 like then. So she will have contributed $144,000 
instead of the 30,000 that Ben did, but she got a much later start. So she put in a lot more. I assume the same rate of return, 8%. And at 65, she'll have 432,000 and change. A healthy sum, but it sounds like hands down, Ben wins the game. Way ahead. Ben is ahead by $310,000. And to me, that's just huge. When you think about it, far, far less money grows to much more if you start early enough. I think that's a wonderful lesson and eye-opener for those of us who are parents. Sounds like we should get to work saving for our kids as soon as possible. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm having more and more parents where their kids are doing something in the summer. Maybe it's mowing lawns, whatever it is, and they use that money. The parents actually let the kids keep the money, and the parents match it and put it into Roth IRAs for them. And I think that's awesome because you you can imagine if you start doing this at 15 years old or 16, even if it's just a couple thousand a year, by the time they're 65, they've got a lovely mystic. Is there any lower age limit to starting a Roth IRA for a child? No. What you need is some some income. Excellent. And do you have to file a tax return for that income? Well, I would prefer that. There's some rules about, you know, if you don't make much money, you don't have to have to file. But I would work with the accountants on that because you want to be able to show that, yes, you had some income in order to qualify for doing the Roth. Wonderful. What do you got next for us, Ms. Catherine? Well, the do-it-yourself. Do-it-yourself doctor. Um, I'll be frank. We don't have tons of do-it-yourself doctors because obviously they won't. They wouldn't be engaging us. But I very often get to look at their portfolios and, and do an analysis there. And it reminds me of a very famous study that was done by a company called Dalbar. And Dalbar is in the financial services industry. Every year they evaluate the do-it-yourself investor versus the U.S. stock market. And I looked at these studies for years and they made no sense to me. I, Every year, the do-it-yourself investor was underperforming the U.S. stock market by 2% a year, 3% per year. I'm thinking, how is that possible? How is that possible? And it took me a while to realize, oh, they were getting their emotions in the way. And they were not using a scientific evidence-based approach to their investing. They were letting their emotions determine that they wanted to put more money in. And as a result, they could not keep up with just the general market. All right. So again, rely on your professional because this is entirely complex. You can't compete against AI and all sort of computer programs, but also it helps keep the emotions out of it so that you can move forward with a financial plan that's hopefully a little bit more stable. Well, stable, more tax efficient and better for you and your emotions and who you are. All good things. And I have here next about listening to the news or following some doctor blogs talks again a little bit about the value of the information that you place your decisions upon. What are your thoughts there? Well, this does kind of tie into the do-it-yourself doctor, because I very frequently will have doctors say, oh, I should just buy an index fund. And after I go through, do you know what an index fund is? And assuming they do, I go, well, how do you pick it? And they're like, oh, well, you know, I read this blog or talked to my colleagues. I'm like, you know, once again, that's like me getting advice from my law partners on what kind of thyroid medicine I should be on. So I would say, be careful. If you're looking at some of these doctor blogs, some of them are amazing and have some great information. Some of them have really horrible, horrible, dreadful information. I'm thinking about one, we've chatted a little bit about this in the past, that's passive income for doctors. So when I say that to you, Christy, what are you thinking? I think of money that's just flowing into your account while you're sitting at the poolside reading your novel. 
right. And that's what passive income should be. You're not doing anything in particular to earn this income. It's just coming in while you're reading your novels by the poolside. In fact, this particular a website that I was looking at that one of our clients had referred me to, they listed, I don't know, 10 or 20 different things that doctors could do for, quote, passive income. Not one of them was passive. It was all active income, meaning you had to do something to earn this money. You had to flip a house in order to earn the money. You had to open up concierge medicine practice. You had to testify in court. You had to do something in order to actually earn the money. So I would say be careful when looking at doctor blogs. Check out with your financial advisor with whether the advice makes sense to you. I suppose we won't go too much into that. However, it does raise the point when you say listening to the news. And of course, I'm thinking about our recent political cycle with the upcoming presidential election and all this talk about fake news and a trusted news source and things like that. Any thoughts there in terms of the value of the information that you might get on your evening news? Well, I will say, I think news may be a misnomer. Um, there's some, a lot of information out there. One of the things I've noticed over the last, oh gosh, eight to 10 years is how much bad news uh, drives viewership or listenership and therefore advertising dollars as opposed to good news. There's a lot of great news about our economy. Honestly, you don't hardly hear that at all. You hear a lot of bad news. So I want to tell clients, uh, whatever you listen to, think of it as entertainment. That's not the same as good advice. And uh, just a case in point, when I started studying for my certified financial planning designation after law school, they taught us that Republicans, when Republicans were in office, the tax rates were always low and the stock market always went up. And when Democrats were in the market, were in office, that was the opposite. Tax rates were high and the markets were down. And I believe that for many, many years because that's what they taught us, right? So one of the things I'm going to have you put on our website um, for Money Minutes for Doctors, Christy, is a chart that goes back to 1926 with the stock market. And it's divided up between Republican presidents and Democrat presidents. And um, Christy, I'm hoping you can see this now in the materials I've given to you. What do you notice when you're looking at the stock market, the U.S. stock market over that time period? And generally, it seems to be a very healthy market that makes steady gains. Yeah, that was a big shock to me. It was like, it doesn't matter who's in the office. It doesn't matter how much you hate them or love them or what have you. The market's going up regardless. Uh, that was just a huge, huge, huge shock. So whenever my clients come in and they're worried about trade wars with China, or right today as we're talking about this, the coronavirus is a big deal. I always want to take them back to this chart and say, take a deep breath. It doesn't matter who's in. It, the market goes up regardless. I Certainly good news. And I think this is also a time with all these political commercials and ads and people spouting their theories. And of course, in an effort to promote their own political campaign, they will often say negatives toward another. It leaves people feeling with a lot of uncertainty. However, if we know that in general, despite any political shifts, the market behaves in a very dependable forward motion, perhaps that's something that will help us sleep a little better at night. Oh, I love how you put that. Yes, a very dependable, not exactly predictable on a day in, day out basis, but very predictable over the long haul. Excellent. Well, Catherine, you've given us a lot of pearls today. Do you want to sum it up in a few take-home points for us? 
So yeah, a couple of things I'd like our, our listeners to be thinking about. First of all, start investing early. I can't, I can't emphasize that enough. So if you're in residency right now and you're broke, 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 I know, set aside $100, $150, something just to start, just start doing it. If you've got young kids in school and you're feeling like you've got student debts, whatever, yes, bite the bullet. Just start setting some money aside. Take it out first thing every month so you never see it. And I'm amazed at how often I can have clients doing that and they never miss it. And pretty soon we just keep increasing it, increasing it. So the sooner you can get started, the better. Excellent. Well, I'm all in agreement. And if you can find a trusted investment financial counselor such as we have, Catherine, then you are in good hands for sure. Well, thank you. And you can always check um, your financial advisor by going on the FINRA website and seeing if they've got uh, you know, any fines or lawsuits or other black marks on their record. So the good news is I have nothing on, on my record, but if you're looking at an advisor, it's definitely something I would check out. Wonderful. And I see you've given us the website address there. I'll go ahead and include the show notes as an easy access point for our listeners as well. Thank you so much for your time. Listeners, I hope that was a little bit of information to help you feel more rounded with your approach toward investing. On behalf of Money Minutes for Doctors, it's Christina McAteer saying goodbye. Enjoy your day. Thanks for tuning in. And we look forward to catching up with you next month.